Hello, everyone. I'm excited to share that I've been given permission to release yet another exclusive interview from last summer's Thrive Summit that was previously only available to the MS Gym membership. The topic of discussion is anxiety, which can be a very real component of living with an unpredictable disease. From identifying the differences between whether you're dealing with true anxiety or just being an overthinker, to the techniques and therapies used to treat anxiety, Dr. Miriam Franco breaks it all down for us in a way that makes it easier to digest. Whether you're currently dealing with anxiety or not, there's a lot to be learned in this episode. So let's get to it. Welcome everyone to this segment of the MS Gym Thrive Summit, where today we're going to be talking with Dr. Miriam Franco about anxiety. Dr. Franco, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I want to let people know exactly what you're bringing to the table, and I think it's a lot. And I think after talking with you today, there are going to be a lot of people out there who are going to have some aha moments based upon the information that you're going to provide. And you are a psychotherapist and relational psychoanalyst in private practice. You're also a professor emeritus with Immaculata University in Pennsylvania. Um, You're certified, and this is where it gets so interesting, and I'm anxious to hear about it. You're certified in integrative guided imagery, and you're an an MS certified specialist. You've taught stress reduction and guided imagery to patients, families, caregivers, nurses, social workers, psychologists, and students. You've conducted workshops on stress reduction and applications to organizations such as the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America, and you're on the Healthcare Advisory Council of the MSAA and a health partner for the National MS Society. One of the most interesting things, and I'm looking forward to our our listeners looking into it, is an app that you created in 2018 called Imagery Work. And it provides unique guided imagery tracks with specialized tracks for MS patients, including topics such as coping with injection anxiety, which, trust me, is a real thing, stress-free MRIs, and relieving caregiver stress. So very on-point topics uh, for MS. But we're going to discuss all of that later. First, guided imagery um, track available for easy use on my app for um, young people coping with MS. They are 10% of the MS population in America. And um, I have a de-stress for MS youth because their anxiety is extremely high. And often um, pediatric MS, which goes up to about 18, 19, or 20, pediatric MS can often uh, present in a more progressive form in terms of cognitive issues earlier. So um, I designed that for this particular growing population. Interesting. I want to start off with some basics because I think people kind of throw the term anxiety around kind of haphazardly. Um, Oh, I have such anxiety about doing this or, oh, my anxiety is really kicking up. When in fact, they're not someone who's been, you know, medically diagnosed with anxiety. What makes anxiety different than somebody who's just a worry wart or stressed out or um, overthinks? Like what differentiates true anxiety from those other types of emotions? Uh, Well, to begin with, anxiety is a response to stress. 
And stress is basic to life because life is constantly changing. So with every change, minor or major, there's a gain and there's a loss. So we tend to think of fear as a specific response to a particular external threat, which triggers the fight or flight response. Most of you know of that, or what's referred to as sometimes our survival response, which emanates from our animal brain, okay? So if you're walking down the streets of your city and you're alone, and um, you see a Bengal tiger who's escaped from the zoo, and he locks his gaze on you, and he utters a low growl and starts running towards you. You don't say, I have anxiety about the tiger. Right. You have fear, right? right. And you're built, you're built for a fear response. Your body kicks up all the um, proteins and glucose sugars. It takes it immediately out of the stomach. It pours it into the system. Your corticosteroids go racking up. Heart rate increases very fast. You have shallow breathing so you can breathe rapidly and a lot of blood's pushed into the limbs. So you can run, 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 right? And if you're lucky, you find a tree and you climb up to the top of the tree. People say you're supposed to feign dead when a tiger comes along, but right. I'm having no part of that running. <laughs> <laughs> so you're built for that. So when you're high up on the tree, and the zookeepers come and sedate the tiger and take him away, now you should be kicking down out of the fight or what we call sympathetic arousal, part of your central nervous system that's always on. And you should be going down into lower states of relaxation, okay? okay. So zebras don't get ulcers because when a, they're eating, on the plains of Africa and a tiger comes, their sympathetic arousal kicks in, which also shuts off left brain higher functioning. Okay, we're in the primitive survival brain now. The zebra runs, gets rid of the tiger. The minute the tiger's gone, the zebra goes back to eating. There's no meaning of why is this happening to me? Will this happen again? Am I deserving of this right. guilt? anticipating the future, focusing on the past. Only people do that. Right. Zebras don't. That's why they don't get ulcers. There's no meaning to the self, no ongoing, even symbolic threat to the sense of self. Okay. Or even maybe PTSD. Okay. So we think of anxiety as more of a symbolic threat to your sense of self associated with change. Okay. We, and what happens is when people have too much anxiety, they can either go into that fight response, you know, hyper-reactive, which means they tend to have a lot of over-anticipation about the future, right. you know, all those negative future-oriented um, thoughts with adverbs, how will I ever, I will never, it will always, they right. get into all nothing thinking, they can't stop obsessing, right? Right. Or... They go into the other response, which is shutting down, freeze, avoiding, procrastinating, sleeping through something. Got it. These are both anxiety responses. And when they're extreme, they're both traumatic responses, either shutting down, hyping up, or rotating, alternating between the two. 
So anxiety becomes an apprehension or fear response to what we perceive the future will hold for what's to come. And we always tend to think about the future based on how we're feeling in the present. And when you're diagnosed with MS, especially yes. newly diagnosed with MS, that's, a, that's the first thing you think about is your future. Yes. But one of the, yeah, of course you do. And future, um, I had this plan of what my life was going to be and I had all my ducks in a row and you know, now, now what now? And, and that can be, I would imagine anxiety inducing. I mean, I've, I've been there. Um, I can't say that I've ever truly had anxiety, a full on anxiety, but I can certainly, you know, associate, with the things that would trigger it, for sure. Yes, yes. And there, there are a couple important things to consider regarding anxiety with MS. Anxiety does not stem from the etiology or the disease process of MS. Depression can, whether you've had it before or not. So a depressed mood um, is sometimes three to four times higher among people with MS and it seems to be connected with not how depressing the disease can be sometimes. It's actually connected with the inflammatory process. So anxiety, the actual le where a lesion may be sitting in your brain. It's the infl inflammation process. Okay. Um, so, um, so anxiety comes with living with the disease. And because MS for many people uh, is a disease they may get diagnosed with early in life and then live with it across the lifespan, unlike other major autoimmune disorders. Anxiety also is stems for MS because MS has a variable course and it keeps changing and no two people with MS are really alike. The most common symptom of MS is fatigue. Yeah. So what happens is it makes it harder to predict your own course. It takes about two to three years for the early diagnosed to get a sense of their own disease process, to have time to find out what disease modifying therapy will work for them. They may switch one or two. It takes time to know what this disease actually is. Right. And since the majority of people with MS have relapsing remitting, they can have periods where they're, they're not as aware of their MS. And so when they have a relapse or a symptom that reemerges, it brings them back into the reality of having the disease. And the lack of predictability is kind of the mind killer. Right. Because it therefore requires uh, a way you have to develop over time a sense of how to develop a fluctuating adaptation. How do you weave in and out? Feel the things you need to feel. Don't deny them, but shift back in. And that takes some learning. Right. That takes a lot of learning. It's basically so, training yourself to be at peace with wherever you are at that time. You know? Yes. And also sometimes you have to mourn temporary losses. Yes. Being pulled out of an activity. There are times where um, you can have anxiety about certain MS treatments or procedures. Right. Um, there can be anxiety about how to plan for the future, anxiety about dating, anxiety about raising children. I mean, we can go on and on. Right. Um, but I, I do think that 
diseases that have a greater uncertainty factor right. always increase the likelihood that individuals will, will interpret the effects as negative, affecting their mood, regardless of their level of functioning or physical functioning. Right. It's the fear of well. itself is very stressful. Right. I, I think fear of the unknown is, has, for me, has always been, it's like you walk around literally with this dark cloud over your head because on any given day, you can wake up and something else has been taken away from you physically or, or cognitively, or, and it's just gone. There was no warning that it was a total blindside. But it's not just one big blindside. It's all these mini blind sides right. progress over time. You know, yes, maybe they relapse for a bit or remit for a bit. But that uncertainty is yes. one of the biggest hurdles with yes. MS in general and yes. certainly anxiety inducing. Yes. And fatigue can affect short-term memory, fatigue and pain, many people with MS actually have pain, it's often underreported, can lower mood, and cognitive issues, which are very common in MS, yeah. uh, can also affect um, temporarily your sense of self. Right. The good news is we're at a point in MS treatment where we know so much more about the specific mechanisms of cognitive difficulties with MS. We can target them early now, we can get baseline cognitive testing. And there are many things we can do to help people with cognitive issues because they're poorly understood. And this is also why if you go to a social worker or a psychologist certified is an MS specialist or a neuropsychologist, they can help you a lot with how to increase your coping, understand this process, and um, how to navigate the system. And I think a lot of people don't do that. I think a lot no. of people don't reach out. I think a lot of people aren't aware of exactly where they need to go. I mean, there are certain resources that might lead them down that road, but I think a lot of people don't. They think just like I did, and, and I, I never reached out professionally to someone. We all think we can get through it. We, you know, reaching out for help, might, we might feel like, we've been defeated by the disease, you know, like, no, I can't control anything else, but I'm going to control this. You know, I don't need anybody else. I don't, when in fact, there are resources there to talk yes, to, people, to get all resources people aren't even aware of and wouldn't have a way of knowing about. And especially if you don't live near a big MS treatment center and, you know, maybe there's nine or yeah. 10 fully comprehensive ones in the country. Right. How many people go to a community neurologist? Right. And, they're really, and with telehealth these days, there are really people out there, uh, health practitioners, MS nurses, MSPTs, social workers, psychologists, neuropsychologists, they can become a member of your team. Yeah. Help you navigate the course of this. Because, you know, none of us... Uh, looks to have these experiences. They become crises and it takes time. I mean, in the beginning, you try to hold on to the life you had, how to pass if you can. Yeah. And then there's whatever the new normal is. And then gradually you become a person living with MS, not an MS patient. Right. But it really helps to have people help you coordinate 
resources, develop meaning, and turn the crisis into an opportunity because the crisis will force you to expand and grow even if you weren't looking to, as does any other crisis in life. And I, I think, and especially I would think newly diagnosed patients would find it difficult to see yes. the gift that can come from something like this, from a yeah, host with a disease, a chronic illness. Um, right, even if it's not yet perceived as a gift or an opportunity, right. the only thing we get to control in life is how we shift our response or attitude. Right. We don't control typically the diseases we get, what we're gonna die from. You know, the only thing we get to choose is how to shift and right. respond differently and have some increased control over that process. And I think you know, current events have certainly tested that theory in the fact that we have zero control over a disease that has taken over the entire globe. We mm -hmm. cannot control that, but we can control how we respond. And, and, it, and MS is much the same way. We don't know, just like we've had to track, you know, the number of cases of COVID and, and how many deaths and how, I mean, it's constantly evolving, and so does your MS. Um, right. some, sometimes it evolves in positive ways. Sometimes it evolves in negative ways. And we have to be able to take, take every punch and stand back up, um, right. figuratively speaking. So, yes. so how would someone know if they're dealing with anxiety that they may need to seek med medical assistance with? or if they truly are just overthinking their situation or just they're a worry wart or what, what kicks it up a notch so it's true anxiety? Or is anxiety more of just a blanket phrase or term? Uh, no, I mean, anxiety in and of itself can be a, a mood, a self-state, if you will, that can come and go. I think most people know when they have it, they know what it looks like, tastes like, smells like, what's happening in their bodies. You know, stress by itself isn't necessarily bad. It's how you respond to stress. You're built for stress, um, physical, emotional, psychological stress, all of it. Um, but if you don't kick stress or anxiety down after a while and interrupt it, then you start to have a reconditioning response. The brain resets around the anxiety response. Too much stress pile up has effects on the system. Uh, excessive stress and MS can bring on a uh, exacerbation. Right. Um, we don't want that. And um, most people know, uh, or other people are telling them, that their anxiety is getting in the way of quality of life or functioning in some area or a preference they have for themselves. Now that's distinguished from some people come in because they're having panic attacks or huge anxiety or they're not sleeping. Right. Insomnia is, you know, a, a classic um, problem with uh, too much stress and anxiety. Um, or they're getting headaches or, you know, they're getting somatic body aches, you know. Um, people will usually know. Okay. Okay. Um, now, when they see sorry, they'll see someone when whatever they're doing, they can't get away with anymore. <laughs> or, you know, in other words, um, when it's just too much for them in some way. Okay. I thought it was interesting. You, you, you mentioned the anxiety that can come with starting a new drug 
or, yeah. or choosing a new drug. And it, yeah. it's interesting because I was diagnosed in 2006 so, uh -huh. and I've, I've run the gamut with all these drugs. So you mentioning that makes me think back to all the, deci the decision-making process when it came to, because at the time there weren't as many drugs, but there were right. plenty to pick from. And I had to choose. Do I want to take Avonex? Do I want to take Beta Seron? Do I want to take Rebif? Do I want? And you had to go and research each one. And with every single side effect you read with every single drug, you're like you said, the, the fear level, you know, X amount could die, X amount could up. The fear level and I'm supposing anxiety about each of those things um, are very real. And it's, it's not even a, it's not even a, it's not a fake issue. These are real decisions yes. that need to be made based on facts, but the anxiety that comes with that and the stress that comes with that are very real. So how, when people come upon these things, the, these situations, they're specific to somebody who has MS, whether yeah. it's, um, choosing a new drug or let's say you wake up one morning and you realize you're having a relapse. It's a, yeah. it, and it's a new symptom. That's when you, that's when you really start to get concerned. Y yeah. My fingers have been numb for five years already, but I wake yes. up, I wake up one day and I have foot drop. That's when you yes. know, Oh my gosh, I must be progressing. How do you, and that's anxiety inducing. How do you uh, it's not only anxiety inducing. I think in my experience, there's a lot of confusion around relapse. You know, we bandy this term around. Yes. Yes. Obviously people know the extreme. I mean, if you're having multiple symptoms and you know, you can't function and you know, you call your neurologist and you're having a relapse. Right. But there's a lot in between. And I think we don't even educate people sometimes of what is a relapse or an exacerbation. Um, or a pseudo-relapse. Or a pseudo-relapse. Pseudo-relapses can be caused by excessive heat when you get a temperature, a fever, like with an infection. Sometimes you have a symptom that emerges or um, you haven't had before, but you're not necessarily having a full-blown relapse. Right. But I do think that it's appropriate to contact your neurologist or MS nurse with those questions. I don't think you should be interpreting that by yourself. Right. And, and we, we all do that. Mean, we do. Yeah. Right. So that kind of anxiety is called signal anxiety. It propels you to act on your behalf and plan. Too much anxiety can get in the way of um, acting on your behalf, getting overwhelmed, you know, like look at people who have dental anxiety, they avoid the dentist, and then the longer they avoid and don't go in, then when they finally go in, they have worse dental issues, they have to be there longer, their anxiety's off the roof, right? right. So good anxiety is something's going on, I'm not sure what it means, I'll check in. Yeah. But then you have to have an entrusting process that you'll come to know more of what you'll need to know. Right. Right. And you have, therefore, working with people that you can entrust your care to is vital. Right. Exactly. And I think that's, that's um, an obstacle for a lot of people. They have a neurologist that they like, but maybe that particular neurologist's nature is not so nurturing. 
um, they're, they're more of, here are the facts. They, they, they're not so much into the emotional side of it. Um, no, they're not. They often spend, although with telehealth, they're spending more time. I can tell you that. It's the way it's set up. It allows them more time. Um, where I practice is in um, the western suburbs of Philadelphia, and we have a very famous center at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania with top international MS neurologists. And so a lot of the people that I see that come from a huge geographic expanse, they'll go to a neurologist at Penn, and then once they are stable on their medicine, they'll follow up with a community neurologist and do their once a year MRI review with the neurologist at the MS Center. Yeah. So that they don't always have to go, you know, you can, um, and you can set things up like that sometimes in some other places. Huh. Also at the bigger centers, there'll be MS nurses um, yeah. and PAs that will yes. help you manage the symptoms. Also, um, MS social, you know, certified, um, social workers certified in uh, MS care, psychologists. I'm always working with other MS practitioners. That's the thing. And how do patients get to you? Like, how, how would someone like you, where are you? Many ways. Many ways. One is um, I'm active in MS organizations, so sometimes it's word of mouth. Okay. Other MS patients may refer me. Yeah, MS nurses uh, or PTs are looking to send someone to someone. And, and I have to say, in telehealth, I'm no longer limited by my geographic constraints. Isn't you know, that something? Um, yeah. And then I, um, in my own area, I've put together, um, and the National MS Society, the local chapter, has a directory. And I know other social workers and psychologists I refer to, and neuropsychologists. And it's really very helpful. Um, and even sometimes the ability, which isn't always common, to find a psychiatrist who really knows MS, you know. Um, right. So, and, and there are resources across the country. So some of these can be tapped into when you're working with someone locally. So what if you find yourself not being able to get out of the anxiety loop? To that person who's out there and they're currently thinking to themselves, I'm never going to, I'm always going to have this anxiety. Can you tell them, I don't want to use the word curable. Is it treatable? Is it manageable? Can you find your way out the other side of anxiety? Like, can you put it in the review mirror or? Because if we couldn't, where would we all be? Right. (laughs) Right. Or or I'd be out of business. Right. Right. (laughs) So um, even depression, many depressions are treatable and they can be horrific when you're going through it. Right. Right. So there's um, the way I work um, and different therapists are trained in different models. So um, I see it as a two prong approach. First, you have to lower reactivity. Right. I mean, if somebody's so anxious that when they come in and they tell me what they're anxious about, they're just getting more hyper reactive. Right. Right. I can't just use talking therapy (laughs) in the beginning. Right. Yeah. So some people might come in and feel relieved and lighter, but not everybody does when they're anxious. So the first goal is teaching people in a number of ways how to, and doing it with them. You know, I don't just say, oh, go learn meditation. (laughs) Right. Because 
when you have a monkey mind, what we call monkey chatter, you know, yeah. a mind that, you know, is full of fretful thoughts, like a runaway train. The last thing you want to do is be alone in your head and learn meditation, right? Right. You can't tolerate it. And it takes a lot of practice. It's unbelievably beneficial, but a lot of people can't start that. They don't even know how to be in that state. So you do things with them. Okay. So I teach people first how to lower reactivity. That's called soothing, right? Or reducing stress or anxiety symptoms. That's the first thing. Their response. Right. Okay. That's the first. It may even be symptoms. Okay. That's the first step. Because once you can lower it, you don't even have to get down to a zero. You can interrupt that automatic pilot response and put something else in. Okay. Right? So relaxation of guided imagery is one of the tools I use. Because you can't be in a very relaxed state and anxious simultaneously. The, the brain can't do it. Okay? okay. Also, there are other kinds of what we call sensory motor resources, ways we teach people to do a little bit of what we call bilateral stimulation to dysregulate themselves when they've been so high up in anxiety, right? They're just so triggered, right? Okay. So first you have to learn how to reduce and soothe. That comes first. Once you can do that, then you can explore with your therapist how to go back in and interact with underlying meanings around the anxiety. Because the anxiety is just a signal it's pushing through, right? You can learn to bear and contain and hold with things that are more emotionally charged because you can also reduce them and kick back in. So stress, effective stress reduction is not staying calm all the time because that's not life. Right. 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 Even if you're pretty good at being calm, you know, right. adult life if it's being lived fully, is not, you know, a lake with no ripples, right? Right. So one of the things you learn is how to kick it down when you don't need to be there. There are also ways to use some cognitive techniques, but I find that cognitive techniques by themselves, it's too high left brain. You can't process that down. When you have a lot of affect in the body, you have to use more body-based responses to lower the animal brain that fight or flight dysregulation that's happening. All right, so there's a number of techniques and ways you do that in a therapy process. Now, do you ever go, because I think, especially when it comes to anxiety and depression, and me, I, I hate taking drugs of any kind. Sure, and, and sometimes with MS, the last thing you want is one more drug. Yes, exactly. Right. I don't want to mix. I don't want to mess with the, you know, concoction that's currently running through me trying to keep the MS at bay. But my thought would be, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to a doctor. The first thing he's going to do, he or she, is going to throw drugs at me. I don't want to do that. How, how, do, how do doctors typically handle that? Do they go straight to the drugs first? Do they start with, you know, the kinds of practices do you start with that and then move to like is it a combination of both well it's very individual but keep in mind the standard of care of practice in uh mental health across mental health professions is you never treat depression just with a drug okay now whether you're going to need to use an antidepressant or try one or not 
is a decision you can make with a therapist and the therapist can work with your psychiatrist or your GP um, because there are a number of factors that have to be considered. And with MS, there are a number of factors that have to be considered. If your depression is not remitting, it can affect short-term memory function. Everything affects short-term memory. Right. You know, any mood, certain medicines, right? Right. Um, also, there are ways to tease out depression from fatigue in MS and um, cognitive issues and mental fatigue, which most people aren't aware of. And this also comes with working with a psychologist or a neuropsychologist. It's very helpful in MS because these things can feel like the same thing and they really have different pathways. So there's a way you can clear out what's going on in the clinical picture by some of these interventions. Okay. And sometimes the antidepressant is necessary to clear up the picture, but that doesn't mean they're gonna stay on the antidepressant. Right. That's a different issue. And you know, people's preferences have to be considered here and at what cost to what else. If they're functioning and they can tolerate some of this and they don't want a medicine, then there are other things to look at. Exercise where possible. Um, you know, and here's the other thing. Um, maybe at some point we can talk about neuronal health um, and stress um, because that's also another thing we have to think of is your neuronal reserve, which okay. we all have but we want to think of um, how to advance that. Okay. And what is your neuronal reserve? Well, what happens is we have many ways in which um, to affect neuronal reserve. It's really sort of your, it has two different parts. One is the fluidity of the way your brain works and neurons can interact with each other. Some people just have a higher fluidity of that than other people. It's just something you're born with, right? But then there are other things we can do to conserve neuronal health. And we know that you can't just eat healthy, though that's very important, and exercise a lot and then be stressed out all the time, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't help your neuronal strength, which means how your neuro, it's like putting money in the bank, a deposit that grows, a savings account. You wanna keep working on your neuronal strength through your lifetime, just like keeping your bones healthy. Okay. Through your life force. So their uh, rest is very important. And one of the things that people often detest, you know, with MS is having to take rest periods. Right. Um, because this isn't just you're a little tired, you know, the finding fatigue in MS is one of the hardest things for people to do and talk about with other people because they right. don't get it. This isn't like you're a little tired or, yeah, I right. feel sleepy too. Not at all. Because it, you know? to the patient, it looks like a weakness. Oh, I'm weak. I can't handle it. You know, I. Yes. And also it takes you out of where you want it to be. Yeah. Some people are lucky. They have a predictable rest period, you know, two o'clock every day. They yeah. can plan that. They yeah. can even plan that at work often. But other people just comes and goes. And so again, it's felt like another reminder, another temporary loss around the disease. I want to go to my daughter's graduation. I, I want to go, you know, do this. So what I try to do is, but rest is extremely important for your nerve health. Your body is needing it. That's why you're getting that response, even if you don't like it. So I try to take that 
and turn it in a time to practice deep relaxation and guided imagery, which is great for increasing short-term immune function in MS and other autoimmune disorders, and develop it into an enhanced rest period where you're enjoying it, it's playful, it's imaginative, it renews energy, it helps restore function and balance, and it can be fun. You know, so you take something that's adverse and you turn it into an opportunity where you could be practicing something else at the same time. But rest periods are extremely important for your neuronal reserve over the life course. Because during that time of rest, your body is repairing and replenishing itself. Absolutely. Right. And nerves have to settle down. Um, exercise, sustained exercise is also very good for neuronal health. So every time you're doing one of those things, either exercising or sleeping or taking the time out to meditate or just stop and reset, you're boosting your neuronal reserve. You're yeah. adding to the neuronal. It's, it's giving you more. Yes. You don't see it now, but it's like you're depositing it in the bank. Right. So and we're, you're going to be hearing more about neuronal reserve and longevity um, because there's more that we're understanding about that. There, you know, we're... We're living at a wonderful time in the MS world um, because so much research is happening. There's so many more treatments, even some medicines for symptom management than there ever were before. We're even seeing people having even better effects on some of the newer, newer medications right. um, in terms of reducing frequency and intensity of relapse right. and new lesions. I mean, I mean, it's never a good time to have MS, but this is, of all the times I've been practicing in it, this right. is the best time. Well, even since 2006, I mean, the options have completely changed. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. It, it used to be, and with that come more choices. That, that's the that's only kind of downside. Um, yes. You play it safe with, you know, the less robust treatments or you go mm -hmm. straight for the big guns. And once again, it gets back to decision-making and all the anxiety and stress that may come with that decision-making. Guided imagery. Guided yes. imagery is your jam. Yeah. <laughs> I want it's, you to- it's Actually, it's a passion of mine. Uh -huh. that, that's awesome. I, yeah. I'm a very visual person. Uh-huh. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, what is this? So I would like you to tell us what is guided imagery? Sure. Um, and how do you use it to help MS patients? Uh, yeah, I use it in a number of ways. First of all, relaxation and guided imagery is just a gentle yet powerful mind-body technique that almost anyone can use. I even use these techniques with people with mild dementia because it's less cognitive in its approach Unlike traditional forms of meditation, it doesn't require... That was my next question. What, what makes this different than meditation? Well, well, there are many forms of meditation, but more traditional forms of meditation are connected to Buddhist practice. And one of the key principles of Buddhist practice is impermanence. Things will change. So you're taught how to utilize diaphragmatic breathing to bring on a present-oriented meditative state and to observe what passes within your mind and body. And with time, it shifts. And you learn to bear and tolerate rather than react to these states, okay? okay. 
Now, guided imagery is not connected to any spiritual practice. Okay. Guided imagery is actually um, uh, used by many nurses, um, holistic nursing. I'm certified by Beyond Ordinary Nursing in um, integrative guided imagery. It's something that you can teach almost anyone. You don't have to be a believer in it for it to work. You don't have to clear your mind with each breath like meditation. And if you have cognitive issues, guided imagery really bypasses left brain cognitive high-ordered functioning. And most people's senses stay intact for a long time. So it's a way that we use more right brain processing and sensory images that allows the body to experience deep felt states that can rapidly shift perception and behavior. So I'll go back now. That's sort okay. of an overview. Okay. Um, so relaxation and guided imagery is gentle. It doesn't require as much practice. You could do it almost anywhere. Unlike addiction, the more you use it, the less you need because your mind gets used to knowing how to get there and use it. Um, and there's so many underutilized therapeutic windows where you can use it in your day, waiting in a doctor's office, waiting on the phone, having a minute or two between something, right? Sitting in the bathroom. So you don't right? need to be sitting in a quiet room on the floor, you know, on well, a... In the beginning, you want to practice it a little bit to get used to it. And then there are ways I teach people how to take some grounding exercises, simple ones that you can do all day long, you know? So guided imagery, first you teach people how to get deeply relaxed through their body. You don't, though it sounds un-American, you don't work at relaxation. It will happen on its own. You're just ushering in a relaxation response. The body will relax first, even if the mind hasn't settled down yet. That's really okay in this technique. The movies of your mind never stop for people. They may slow down, but you never have a totally blank mind, okay? And you don't need to. So what happens is people get into a very deep state. I guide them through letting go of stress in their bodies. And I do very simple, slower exhales, which is how you get into belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing but you don't work on the breathing, okay? So what happens in this state is you have expansive blood flow, right? You have um, diaphragmatic breathing, it's less shallow breathing, so you have less dry mouth, a trait associated with anxiety. You let go on a microscopic level, uh, muscle constriction and tension because you get more oxygen to the muscles, right? You stop that hypervigilant scanning, and you focus more in the present, that's called a meditative state, right? Now, and it feels good. If you then, in this state, imagine with your senses, and guided imagery isn't just visualization, it's any of your senses. Okay. 60% okay? uh, of Americans are primary visual processors, but it doesn't matter if you have one sensory image that comes up or two or three. So in the beginning, I'll do something simple as you're relaxing deeply. And I use imagery to relax the body, okay? Your sensory images. If I take you in the beginning to something simple, like imagine your ideal place of relaxation, which for most Americans is the beach, 
Okay. It doesn't matter if you see the blue sky, meet the green blue waves of the ocean at the horizon. If you hear the syncopated lapping of the shore as waves hit the shoreline, if you hear seagulls chirping, if you feel the warm rays of the sun on your back, the sand beneath your toes, or if you have a great olfactory sense, a sense of smell, you might smell that moist, salty air. You can get one sense going or several. And what happens, even in this simple little exercise, is under these right conditions, your body doesn't discriminate from the real event, the beach. You don't have to go to that beach. You can even go to a beach you've never been to, but just need to visit now that right. you've seen in a paper, right? And your body converts the healing, soothing imagery of the your body takes in through the senses. It's also the way you carry people you love is through sensory perception. That's how we hold and contain experience, right? So, the body just keeps soaking it in like deep depth charges and just keeps resonating and reverberating in the body. Okay. So in this state, and of course it can get more elaborate, it can have more elaborate exercises and deeper states. So in this state, this relaxation response, once you add sensory imaging and as you do more sensory guided imaging, it spruces up right brain processing. That's the part of the brain that's associated with symbolic wordplay, your senses, creativity, heightened intuition, being more open and receptive to experience, and your unconscious subconscious emotions. Okay. So in an imaginative way, the images that seep up before you feel more vivid, more immediate, more emotionally charged, and you're just sort of interacting with them. And this leads to a much more playful shift in awareness, perception, and behavior because you're experiencing it. So you can use guided imagery to rehearse and prepare for a challenging medical or painful medical procedure, a challenging life event, because it's perfect for preparing and rehearsing. So I use these techniques to prepare people for surgery. I use these techniques um, for women undergoing childbirth. I use these techniques for caregiver stress. I use these techniques. I have a, a stress-free bride <laughs> track. Oh, I do cool. all kinds of things, right? Because it's wonderful to prepare and rehearse. And there are many studies, athletes know this very well. They may get relaxed and use visualization, but you can even train doctors how to do their first um, injection or um, venipuncture. You know, um, there were studies done with a control group that just was told what to do. And then the other group with just a light, brief relaxation and guided imagery using their senses to imagine doing it outperformed the other group. Interesting. Okay. You can also use relaxation and guided imagery to focus on end results you want to experience more. This is not whether you get these end results. It's more about finding pathways to open up of what it's like to have it, right? So I can work with people who are wheelchair bound that are enjoying swimming in their minds or running and enjoying moving those motor neurons around, okay? You can also use guided imagery for wellness, 
You can use it to shift pain experience so you can fall back to sleep. You can use it to expand empathy for another person. I mean, there's just myriad of applications. I've tended to use it a lot in more immediate ways um, and in medical areas. Um, my guided imagery app is really a niche. Um, I don't have 50,000 you know, relaxation tracks. I have um, my De-Stress 101, which is my entry level one. Okay. I have, um, I have a whole page um, dedicated to MS where I have one called going to a safe place, which is great for infusions or reducing or getting rid of tension headaches, a symptom of infusions, and when you're alone in the infusion. Interesting. I have stress-free MRIs because you can shift time in the mind and increase the sense of time travel. Right. You, you all know this. You just don't know how to do it in a more elaborate way. You all know when you're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with a relative, you can't stand. Ah. Five minutes feels like an eternity. <laughs> and when you're sitting next to somebody you love, four hours feels like five minutes. Well, there are ways you can do that with guided imagery to make the time pass in the MRI. I can focus on people's feet and toes, which are open and exposed. I can do any number of things um, in an imaginative meditative state using sensory processing. So, um, and, and the MRIs are very stressful because as you know, so much gets determined by the MRI. Right. 50% of people with MS have claustrophobic feelings or anxiety. Yes. You can take a, a sedating pill, but then you have to have a caregiver come and bring you there and back. You can't move in the MRI, you know. So it's fun to have a way where you can turn on your own pharmacy and mind body. I also have um, uh, imagery to um, called Imagine the Possibilities, where you can imagine and results you would like to experience. And this is very good for long-term goals where it's hard to sustain motivation. Okay. Um, where you can imagine what it's like with your senses to really be in this experience rather than all the ways of how I'm going to get there. Yeah. You know, and then I have other, I have other tracks. I have blogs, I have videos. Um, I have a podcast called imagine that, that I have many, many of my podcasts I've interviewed people in the MS world who are working creatively, but basically relaxation and guided imagery is fun. And, um, it's great with kids and it, it increases a sense of self-efficacy. In my lowering injection anxiety, first I teach people how to get deeply relaxed yeah. and know their own healing process. Then I bring in the injection as an ally in their own healing process. You know, they're not passive, they're not on an injection. When I work with dialysis patients, I, I did interventions with guided imagery, so they're not just on a machine. They're right. using the time actively to interact in a sensory way with the treatment. So at some point in that guided imagery track, I guide them through their blood-brain barrier as they're imagining this and feeling this and see how any of these medicines, injectables, are moving into their neuronal pathways like highways and um, something that both men and women can relate to. And they see how the uh, medicine is sort of working in their bodies. Yes. And so they end up developing a more personal relationship with their medicine yeah. as an ally. So there's a lot of applications for relaxation and guided imagery. I can't begin to go into all of them. 
Um, but one of the things I also love is just teaching people how to get deeply relaxed. Many people don't know what it's like to be in an extremely deep, relaxed state. So it's, it's really a wonderful, healthy way of being. So um, if people are interested, my app is available at um, Google Play or Apple Store. It's called Imagery Work. It's $4.99 a month for a subscription. Um, people can always contact me if they have a question. And I, I work with people long distance over the phone. With and we will be providing links to all of your information on, on you. the uh, production. Yeah. I know. I, I have yeah. your downloaded and I think it's awesome. Um, right. I just, especially when I saw the um, stress-free MRI and the, uh, you know, fear of injection, all of which, you know, I've had to deal with. I am not claustrophobic, but I worked at an MRI facility before I had to stop working for seven years. Uh -huh. Claustrophobia is a huge deal. Now, even though I'm not claustrophobic, when I had, I've had about 22 different MRIs now, some of them can be three hours long. Right. I ha always have them put a washcloth over my eyes. Even though I'm not claustrophobic, I can see where I could easily get that way if I open my eyes and I have something right there. So right. I, I did my own version. I didn't call it guided imagery, but I always would pretend I was lying on the ground in a field. Right. Summer and d very sensory. It's warm out. The sun is shining on me. I'm watching the puffy clouds go by. I mean, right. I did that the whole time. And right. you went to your happy place, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then, and then I also, I try to do things where I think of, you know, imagine people who are in a confined space like I am, but you know, they're in war in a foxhole. You know, I'm not in a foxhole. I can get out if I want to. I don't have people shooting at me, you know, that kind of thing. So I try to talk myself into thinking that I'm in a much better place than I could be, you know. But it's probably best that you first got relaxed yes. by going to a safe place or uh, an ideal place of relaxation. Yep. Then you use your cognitive, rational mind once you were settled. Right. Okay, this isn't so bad. You know, right. you got out of catastrophic thinking. Right. There are things I can be grateful about. But, you know, the difference is if you just say an affirmation, which some people like, yeah. in a moment I'll be calm. Well, that's a thought. But in guided imagery, it's what calm feels like, looks like sounds like, tastes like. It's a whole felt body state, even if you're very visual. So it's an interactive state. There, there are ways you learn more deeply and intuitively about yourself and become more attuned to how to dysregulate yourself. And um, cognitive thoughts are helpful, but not if you're not kicking down the reactivity first. I think that's awesome. That's what I find. Yeah. I think a lot of people will find the app very useful. And I cannot thank you enough for all of the information that you've provided today. You obviously, you've seen a lot. Seen a lot, yes. seen a lot, <laughs> seen it all. And uh, I, I can't recommend enough that people check you out. As I said, we'll be providing links. Anything else that you'd like to say to all the MS patients out there at whatever stage of their disease they're in any advice on anxiety 
just like a blanket piece of advice? I think that learning to live in the present, um, using techniques and tools to help you do that, is a way that starts to help break down anxiety because anxiety has to be uh, coped with in smaller bite-sized steps. You know, it's not like we can go, oh my God, I got to eat this nine course meal. How will I do that? That's where the mind goes, but it's not actually how we actually undergo processes. We eat one thing, we move to the next, we break it down. That's actually the way we start engaging, moving through things. And as we engage and develop an entrusting attitude, we can start to work on some of the other parts. So staying in the present, keeping things in smaller present steps stops some of the overloading of anxiety. Love it. Absolutely love it. Thank Dr. You. Franco, thank you so, so much for coming on today. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. For more information on the MS Gym, you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, or at themsgym.com. We'll see you on the next episode.